So if you have a Bible with you, we're back in Acts. We're in Acts chapter 26, and we hope to finish uh, this chapter today, and then we'll only have two more, two more to go after today. We're in chapter 26, and we're looking at verses 19 through 32 together this morning, Acts chapter 26, verses 19 to 32. The title for the sermon this morning is, Did Paul Have a Manic Episode? Did Paul have a manic episode? So while you're turning there, uh, some of us were able to attend the ACBC conference this week. It was at Grace Baptist. We had a phenomenal time. There were about 2,000 or so people there and a lot of keynote plenary speakers that are from Masters that you guys would all recognize their names. And I wanted to say congratulations to Mary Taylor. Mary completed her ACBC certification, was able to walk and be awarded with that certificate on Tuesday evening. So congratulations to her. And of course, we were blessed even last week to have Dr. Scott and Martha Peace with us. If you attended that Q&A that they did in equipping hour, that was a phenomenal time, I heard. And uh, it was just a great week. It was good to be together with God's people and to study uh, how we can continue to grow in biblical sanctification. So I know that was just a, a treasured time for, for many. So if you, um, you want to follow along, I'm going to read our text, Acts 26, 19 to 32, and then we'll dive into our time together this morning. Here's what we read. Therefore, O King Agrippa, this is Paul giving his defense, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and all throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying that nothing, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And he was saying these things in his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Father, we're grateful again this morning to be together to worship through the word and through worship, through song and through giving and through just serving and just fellowshipping together this morning. And I pray as we look at this passage of Paul defending himself there in Caesarea before Festus, before King Agrippa, 
that you would allow us to learn from what the Apostle Paul said in a way that would encourage us and challenge us to be fearless in our defense of the gospel at all times. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Acts, discusses how Paul wasn't the only pioneer that the world ever considered to be crazy. In the late 1800s, a clergyman by the name of Bishop Wright thought that it was impossible for man to fly. Flight, he said, is reserved for the angels. Well, as you probably know, on December the 17th, 1903, his oldest son, Wilbur, took his seat in the first power-driven plane ever built and was airborne at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, for 12 seconds and 120 feet. There were some who thought that the Wright brothers were a little crazy before that fateful day, but today they are everyone's heroes. It was the same for Christopher Columbus. People were so sure this crazy explorer would sail off to the end of the earth, literally to fall off the globe, that the coins that they carried at the time, those who doubted Columbus, had a Latin inscription uh, that says, Ne plus ultra, which means no more beyond. But after 1492, when Columbus did sail the ocean blue, the new coins read, plus ultra, meaning more beyond. Uh, when Robert Fulton gave his first public demonstration of his steamboat, some of the bystanders chanted, it will never start, never start, never start. But when it started, the astonished crowd began to repeat, it will never stop, never stop, never stop. Similarly, many of Apostle Paul's common uh, contemporaries considered him to be a little bit out of touch with reality. Even today, some would maintain that Paul had an hallucination on the road to Damascus, and his subsequent teachings that perverted Judaism were all based on this false belief that he had seen the risen Christ. In fact, uh, Paul was the, the sanest of, of theologians, and his teachings were actually truly directed by God. Acts 26 records Paul's sanity being questioned. It's what we're looking at in this chapter. Was he crazy? Had he gone mad? Did he have a manic episode? Some of you may know, according to the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Statistics Manual, Psychiatric Disorders, that in order to be diagnosed with a manic episode, you have to have at least one week of abnormally and persistently elevated, expansive, or irritable mood. This is coupled together with an abnormally and persistently increased goal-directed activity with significantly increased energy. And one of the key features of a manic episode is that, the, is that it is uh, sufficiently severe to cause impaired uh, judgment in a social setting or in an occupational setting enough to necessitate a hospitalization to, present, to prevent yourself from being at harm to yourself or someone else. So in other words, someone who's gone crazy like this is usually going to be hospitalized to protect them from hurting someone because they have believed things that are out of their mind. In fact, the key uh, feature of having a manic episode would be to have a psychotic feature, to have a 
Psychotic feature means that you are out of touch with reality. It means that you believe something that was happening that was not true. It means that you have an audible or a visible hallucination where you are claiming false realities. You had some type of -of out-of-body experience and now you're living your life based on that delusion. This is exactly what Festus is accusing Paul of in verse 24. Look at verse 24 when he says again, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. They are accusing Paul of being delusional, of having some type of hallucination. Again, in today's terminology, he must have had a manic episode. Today, we are facing unprecedented attacks on our faith as well. And some of the faithful have paid unexpected prices for their beliefs over the last several years. There was that teacher in New Jersey who was suspended for giving a student a Bible. There was that football coach a few years back in Washington State who was placed on leave for saying a prayer on the football field at the end of the game. There was the fire chief in Atlanta fired for self-publishing a book that was defending Christian morality. There was the Marine that was court-martialed for placing a Bible above her desk. And many other examples, new examples daily, it seems like, of the intolerance against Christians. Anti-Christian activists hurl smears like bigot and hater at Americans who hold traditional beliefs about marriage. And they accuse anti-abortion Christians of waging a supposed war on women. And none of this should come as a surprise for Paul in his day as he was being persecuted or for us in our day as 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13 reminds us, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The truth is, we are not crazy, right? We have biblical convictions. We have not gone mad. We just want to make Jesus known. We are not out of our minds. We are out on a mission to preach the resurrected Christ. And so this morning, I want us to look at four headings as we look at the rest of Paul's defense before King Agrippa. First, we're going to see Paul passionately preach repentance and obedience, verses 19 to 21. Second, Paul consistently proclaimed the same message as Moses and the prophets, verses 22 through 23. Third, we'll see how Paul unapologetically pronounced true and rational words, verses 24 to 26. And then in 27 through 32, we'll see number four, Paul tried to persuade Agrippa to be a Christian. Let's start off with number one, shall we? Paul passionately preached repentance and obedience in your first blank. If you are taking notes there in your outline this morning, are you obedient to your calling? Are you obedient to your calling? Verse 19 says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Now, last time we were in this passage, a couple of weeks ago, we examined how the resurrection truth radically transform Paul's life. 
Paul was a Jew. Paul was of the strictest party of the Jews as a Pharisee. And with this strong Jewish upbringing and training, Paul was convinced at that time before he was saved, right, that Christians were wrong and that he was in the right. And this strong conviction of Paul led him to persecute Christians in Jerusalem and in Judea and all over that region. And as Paul was traveling on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 to imprison even more believers, there was that light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that appeared about midday. And after Paul and his companions had fallen to the ground, a voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus was speaking to Paul and asking, why are you persecuting me? And to to persecute the church is to persecute the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He is the head and we are part of his body. And so as the church was being persecuted, Jesus was saying to Paul, why are you persecuting me? And then Jesus said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. We talked about how the goads were those sharp sticks placed on either side of the harness of an oxen that would be traveling to plow a field, couldn't turn his head too much to the right or to the left. It would make it go straight instead of wandering from side to side. We talked about how Paul was kicking against the Lord's discipline and against the Lord's direction. And Paul seems to have been trying his very best to resist the Lord's leading and the the Spirit's clear direction. And resist for a while, he did, but man can never resist the sovereign will of God. He may do so successfully again for a moment or for a season, but God is ultimately sovereign over the will of a man. And Jesus is saying, when he says, don't kick against the goads or stop kicking against the goads, he is in effect saying, stop fighting me and submit to me. And Jesus was calling Paul to repentance and faith. And then Jesus was calling Paul immediately into a lifetime in ministry. Jesus said, I am appointing you as a servant and as a witness. Jesus said, rise up and get on your feet, for I am sending you to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And we ended last time with Paul's commissioning to reverberate the gospel there in verse 18. Look at verse 18. This is what the gospel does to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We ended last time breaking that verse into four components, and we said this is what the gospel does. Number one, it replaces darkness with light. Number two, the gospel releases you from the power of Satan to God. Number three, it remits your sins. And number four, it restores a lost inheritance. It's a great verse to pray. I told you one of the dads on the cross-country team told me he was praying that for one of his lost children, that he would just pray, God, would you just do this work in my kid's life? Would you replace their darkness with light? release them from the power of Satan as unto God, remit their sins and restore a lost inheritance. And so Paul is now saying, as we're transitioning into verse 19, he's saying to King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision. In other words, Paul had been kicking against the goads long enough and it was time now to submit to and follow the Lord Jesus. 
And I just wonder as you read that, that something might strike you as being an important question that we must ask ourselves, are you being obedient to your calling? I mean, how many of you has God placed a special calling on your life to be a witness for him and you've been kicking against the goats? You've been deciding, you know what, I don't really want to do that. I don't want to surrender everything or I don't want to be that bold of a witness because I know it's going to cost me. And the fact is, God has truly called each and every one of us to be his ambassadors. I know not everyone's called to be an apostle. There were only 12, and then Paul made number 13, right? I know not everybody's called to be a pastor or a missionary. I get that. But we're all called to be ambassadors. We are all called to be God's witnesses in a lost world. We are called to be active in sharing the love of Christ with those that we come in contact with. And certainly, We haven't forgotten the theme of the whole book of Acts, have we? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive what? Power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my what? My witnesses. You receive power. You are our witness to Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is what God's called us to. And Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So my question to you this morning is, what is God calling you to? Listen, I used to be a PA working in medicine, and I loved my job. And I would sit there in the pew, and at times I would sense the calling of God saying, hey, you know what? I've got something else for you to do besides just working in medicine. I'm calling you to a, to a different calling. I would say to a higher calling, but you understand we each have a high calling if we're in Christ to preach the gospel in whatever context we're in through your job and as a witness. But for some of you, it may be that God's calling you. He's, he's calling you out of your secular profession. And I get it. There is no secular, right? It's sacred because God calls us. We want to be a witness. But it may be that God's calling you out of your job into the mission field or to be a pastor or to be somehow involved in full-time ministry. Now, we don't want to squelch that concept in the Bible that not only is there a calling to salvation, but there's a calling to a life of service to God. Young man, What is it that God is truly calling you to give your life to? Because so many times we just get wrapped up in the American dream. Oh, it's about having a great job with a great house and a beautiful wife and two kids and a picket fence. Right? That's what I was going for it, man. I was was going for that. God knew he had to call me into the ministry so I could meet this beautiful woman. She wasn't in Georgia. She was out here, just graduated from the master's university, right? So, so with the calling comes good things, people. Come on, good things come with the calling. You don't have to just lose it all. You might gain something incredible. But I'm just asking you, whatever that means for you in your life, are you being obedient to your call? Aren't you tired of living a boring life, doing the same thing every day? Step out in faith. Follow God to the ends of the earth. And don't ever be disobedient to that call. That's what Paul is saying to Agrippa. And then we read in our next blank, B, are you performing deeds in keeping with repentance? Are you performing deeds in keeping with repentance? Verse 20, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent. 
and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And so here we're just reading about how Paul was in Damascus, and then Paul was in Jerusalem, and he had been all through Judea. He had traveled to the Gentile world in each of his three missionary journeys. And as Paul was preaching about the resurrected Christ, he was also explaining what real repentance looks like. And real repentance looks like people coming to Christ, turning from their sin and turning to God, and then walking in obedience. And so let's look at this for a little bit from verse 20. We have the word repentance here, metanoia, in the original, metanoia. It involves a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. So first, there's a change in your mind. Remember with Paul, he didn't believe Jesus was the Christ, and then he did believe that Jesus was the Christ. He wasn't convinced that that Jesus was the Messiah, and then he was convinced that he was the Messiah. And so there was a change of mind, which led to a change of behavior. So first, it has to do with what you believe about Christ. Maybe you've had doubts. Maybe you've been a critic of the gospel. Maybe you've just simply rejected the gospel for your own life. And the first thing that must happen in your life is you must repent of the rejection of Christ. And then you must repent, meaning turn from your sin and turn to God. It's turning. And repentance, change of mind, leading to a change of behavior, which means if you said that you had a change of mind, but you don't have a change of behavior, then we have to question whether or not you really had a change of mind, right? It's more, it's the whole idea that repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry. Then you do the same thing again. Oh, I'm sorry. Then you do the same thing again. I mean, let's say that I was a thief, And I was robbing banks right here in Santa Clarita. And every single day, I robbed a bank for $5,000. And the next day, let's say I felt bad about it, or maybe, you know, that night I'm counting up my money, and I'm feeling bad, like, man, I shouldn't have robbed the bank. I'm really sorry, Lord. And the next day, I go out and rob another bank, $5,000. Same thing, oh, I'm really sorry, shouldn't have done that. Day three, I robbed the bank, $5,000. What if I did that every single day for a year? What would you say about your pastor? First of all, I wouldn't be your pastor anymore, right? Wouldn't be qualified. But what would you say to the person who did the same thing every day for a year? Would you say that person is repentant? No, you'd say that person's a fool. That person says they're a Christian. They say they love God. And yet they're doing the same thing over and over and over again. Listen, that's not what repentance is. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior where you're turning from your sin and you're turning to God. And we see this terminology of turning all through the book of Acts. In fact, flip back to Acts 11.21. Just wanted you to see the word turn here because this is what repentance is. It's a turning. Let's look at Acts 11.21. It says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed, what does it say? Turned to the Lord. So the hand of the Lord was with them, a great number who believed. What did they do? They turned to the Lord. Go over to Acts 14 and 15. Acts 14, 15, we read here about the potential new converts in Lystra, where it says in Acts 14, 15, men Why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should, what's the word? 
Turn. You should turn from these vain things to a living God. He's saying everything that you do outside of faith in the gospel is in vain. All of your religiosity is in vain. Turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Turn over to chapter 15, verse 19. We read about the Gentiles' genuine repentance at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, verse 19, where Paul says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. So please note again, it's not just a confession of faith, it's there's action in what's happening. There's a change of mind which leads to a change in behavior. There's a turning from and a turning to. This means that as you're turning to God, according to our main text here, verse 20 again, then you begin to do things that are different. You begin to perform deeds that are in keeping with repentance, doing good deeds. Sometimes we think about that as a bad thing. We're like, oh, well, your good deeds can't save you. Okay, I get that. I, I totally agree. Your good deeds can't save you. But the question is, are you doing good deeds? Because if you've truly repented, you're supposed to be doing a lot of good deeds. You're supposed to be every day, all day long, doing good deeds, never to earn your salvation, but as evidence of a life that's been radically changed. And if your life's been radically changed, then you're doing the things that God calls you to do, which is in commiserate with repentance. It's in step with repentance. That's what saving faith looks like. I mean, James, the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, really zeroed in on this in his whole epistle. And in James 2.18, it says, look, you, someone's going to say they have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So he's saying, hey, look, if you say you got faith, but you got no works, that kind of faith doesn't save you. The kind of faith that saves is a repentant faith, which will evidence itself by works that you do. That's how you demonstrate outwardly what's happening. Where do you think James got that from? He got it from his half-brother, the Lord Jesus, who said more succinctly in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So he's telling us, look, you've got to repent, but you've got to bear fruit as evidence of true repentance. Otherwise, it's not true repentance. Again, with more clarity, Jesus said in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, you know this passage, verses 16 through 20 of Matthew 7, Jesus said, you will recognize them by their fruits. He didn't say you'll recognize them by their profession. He didn't say, well, you recognize them by what they say. They say they love me, then they love me. Jesus never talked like that. He just said, You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Answer, no. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, Jesus said again in verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. It's so important. For us to understand what Jesus is teaching, what James taught, and what Paul is saying right here, they're all saying the same thing, right? That the resurrection of Christ radically transforms us. And it doesn't just transform our theology, it transforms our behavior. Theologians like to say it this way, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. 
See, what you believe about doctrine ought to be put into practice as you live out what you do. What you believe shapes what you do. The theological convictions that we have ought to shape our moral decisions. So the question is asked, is that true for you today? Do you believe that God's ways are better than your ways? Do you believe that his heavenly word is better than your earthly desires? If your life is not characterized by heartfelt obedience, then something is wrong. Something is dreadfully wrong If you say, I believe in Christ, but your life is still littered with more bad fruit than good fruit. Now again, we understand no one's perfect, and we still struggle, and we stumble, and we fall. We know that. But what the scriptures teach is there is a regular adherence to and a clinging to Christ. And there is a willingness to say, you know what? I don't want to follow my worldly past anymore. I want to follow who God is, and he's changed my heart, and if my heart has been transformed, there ought to be a desire. I think that we're led more by desire than we're led by duty. Now, duty's there. We need to sometimes be like, you know what, I'm doing this because I know it's the right thing, even though I don't feel like it at the moment, but it's the desire that God gives that radically transforms the Christian. If your whole Christian life is about duty, then you're gonna get monotonous and you're just gonna go through the motions and you're only doing it not to get caught. But if your whole life is about desire, I love God, I love the gospel, I love the fact that Jesus saved me from enslavement to sin, then your desire, nobody has to tell you to do it. Nobody's gotta tell you to get up in the morning and to spend time with God in his word. Nobody's gotta tell you when you desire to do that, you just do it because you want to be in the presence of God and you want to know him and to make him known in all of your life. This is what happened to Paul. He was radically transformed. He was completely different. And he was telling Agrippa, now I am walking in these deeds. These deeds that I'm doing now is out of obedience, it's out of a new desire, and they're demonstrating that I am keeping with my repentance. And then we move on to verse 21. Are you ready for what this might lead to? Are you ready for what it might lead to? Because if you live a radical life for the Lord Jesus and you sell out for him with every part of your heart is now all about Christ every day, all day, guess what might happen to you? Well, for this reason, Paul said, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. It wasn't like Paul was committing some crime. It wasn't like he was doing some dirty deed. He's simply preaching the gospel, and he was actually going through the the ritual of the the oath and sponsoring those four guys in the temple at the time, if you remember when we went through the particulars of what was happening at that moment. But then he's arrested while he's in the temple, and they make false accusations against him, and they tried to kill him. This is all explained in, in Acts 21, 27. And again, in Acts 21, 30 through 31, they were persecuting. Paul mainly because he preached the resurrection. And they were persecuting Paul because he preached that Jews and Gentiles would become one if they were both in Christ. So not only did the Jews hate the message of the resurrection, they hated the message of unity between Jew and Gentile become one in one new man, namely the church, if they're in Christ. And the Jews couldn't stand it. And so they persecuted Paul because he was obedient to the heavenly vision. And the same thing will happen to you and will happen to me if we obey our calling. Don't expect a pat on the back. 
Don't expect the world to think that you've, you're awesome, right? They're going to say you've gone mad and began to persecute you, which again is why Jesus says to John in John 15, verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And then Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, right? Don't be surprised, dear church, when they come after you. And remember that the Holy Spirit will give you the words of what to say in that very moment. I know that I would rather be obedient to my calling and be arrested than to disobey my calling and be apathetic to the things of God. I would rather be obedient and have the favor of God than to be disobedient and face the discipline of God. I would rather be obedient and experience the joy of Christ and the Christian life than to be silent and experience the guilt and the pain and the shame of being enslaved to my sin. How about you this morning? May God help us to be faithful in our witness for him no matter what. And so now that we've seen Paul passionately preaching repentance and obedience, let's look at number two. Paul consistently proclaimed the same message as Moses and the prophets. Your next blank says God always provides help. He always provides help. The first part of verse 22, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. So even though it got tough, even though Paul's being persecuted, he is acknowledging here, look, from day one, I've always had God's help. Since Paul had been arrested, God had always been there and helped him each and every time. Even when the Jews tried to beat him to death, he provided help by the centurion and the the cohort that saved him and took him into custody. God provided help by Paul's nephew who, who exposed the plot of the conspirators. God provided help by allowing Paul to use the legal system to appeal to Caesar instead of going back to Jerusalem to be killed on the way back from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Not only that, but God provided help and sustained Paul throughout his ministry at every turn. God provided help when they lowered Paul in a basket outside the wall in Damascus shortly after his conversion. God provided help for Paul when he was stoned uh, and left for dead in Lystra. God provided help when Paul and Silas were locked up in the stocks in the jail and singing hymns around midnight there in Philippi. God always provided help. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 8 through 10 says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So Paul went through the persecution and he went through the imprisonment and he went through the beatings and he went through the mockery, but God always provided help. And God gave or excuse me, Paul gave the same praise to the Lord in 2 Timothy 3.11. 2 Timothy 3.11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, this is all in his first missionary journey, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So every time he's been rescued, you might say again, yeah, but he got got arrested again, he got imprisoned, he's been condemned to death, yeah, but God, God rescued him. God sustained him. 
God gave him opportunity to fulfill his calling even while he's in prison and now he's preaching the gospel before King Agrippa. Dear Christian, God will always provide help for you to do exactly what he's called you to do. You are never alone. You are never operating out of your own strength. Psalm 46 reminds us of this, right? God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Whatever trouble you're facing today, it could be a a medical need or a financial need or, or it could be a relationship that's broken or it could just be confusion about your dating life. Master students, I know you get confused about that. Hey, we love you. We love you. We're helping you guys out. Helping you guys out. So, you know, the idea here is that God is our help. Is he not? He's our help. He's our refuge. And he never abandons us. He never leaves us on our own. He's always there in the situation helping us. He is our fortress. He is our strong tower. Be encouraged today in the help that God provides that no matter what you're going through, no matter how tough it gets, he is our help, he's our refuge, and he is our savior. We also read in these verses, your next blank, God's message never changed. His message never changes. The rest of verse 22 in the first part of 23 says that, so because my help comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead. Let's just pause right there. So the help that God provided enabled Paul to proclaim the same message before both small and great. Paul preached the gospel to the well-known and to the unknown. He preached the gospel to the powerful and to the plain. He preached Christ to the small and to the great, right? To those that were in charge and to those who were at large. That's what Paul did. The same message that he preached, and it was the same message as Moses and the prophets, So he's saying, hey, I'm I'm just standing on my Old Testament. I'm not unhitching the New Testament from the Old Testament, right? I'm connecting the two, that you can see that everything that I got to say comes right out of the Pentateuch, and it comes right out of the prophets, and it comes right out of the writings, and it's all over the Proverbs, and it's all over the Psalms. Everything that's ever been written was all about Christ. It was always pointing to him that he must suffer and that he must rise from the dead. You say, Adam? Well, where in the world was all this taught in the Old Testament? Well, they're all listed for you right there. Not all, I should say some of the main passages could be listed for you right there in Deuteronomy 18, 15, where Moses clearly said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Psalm 22, a well-known messianic psalm written by David, tells of the cross of where Jesus must suffer. In Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoted by Jesus on the cross, right? Psalm 22, verse 16, explains the manner by which Jesus would be crucified, where it says a company of evildoers encircles me, and they pierce my hands and my feet. It's a clear prophecy that the Messiah would suffer immensely. Isaiah 53 speaks to the crucifixion of Jesus in verse 5, that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities and by his wounds we are healed. And in Psalm 16, 
One of the best Old Testament texts to point to the resurrection in verses 10 through 11 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So these, these Old Testament passages all point to the fact that while Christ must suffer and die as he did on the cross, he will also be risen from the dead. And he will, his presence will allow us to have life. And by placing himself, Paul's placing himself in a long line of Moses and the prophets, by doing that, Paul is stressing again that Christianity is not totally new or different or heretical but it's simply the fulfillment of God's plan as revealed through the scripture. Jesus would be the first to rise from the dead. It doesn't mean chronologically. There were other people, both in the Old and New Testament, who were raised from the dead. But it does mean first in preeminence, first in importance, first in the fact that his resurrection directly attributes the power for all who are in him to be resurrected as well. And then Paul emphasized at the end of verse 23 that God's love is for all people. God's love is for all people. I'm not talking about universalism here. I'm talking about beyond the Jew into the land of and the people of the Gentiles. Look at the verse, uh, rest of verse 23. He says that he would proclaim light both to our people. Guess who that is? The Jews. He's going to proclaim light both to our people and What does it say, the end of verse 23, to the Gentiles? Again, this is the very truth that the prideful Jew hated. They hated this idea. They just wanted to be those four and no more. That's what they wanted. We got our system. We got our salvation. We got power. We got money. We got the world by the tail, and we don't want it disrupted. But the Abrahamic covenant was never about only Israel. Listen to what it says in Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What does that sound like? Does that sound like a promise only to Jews? I don't think so. He said it's through you that all the families of the earth will be blessed. Does God have a special place for his people? Yes, Is he going to redeem the promises that he's made to repentant Israel and the millennial kingdom? I would say yes. But the focus of the Abrahamic covenant was always pointing ultimately to the gospel, to the fact that Jesus would be born as a Jew and bring universal blessing to all those who repent and believe in him. God's love for his people and for all people was also made clear by Isaiah. So it's taught by Moses in Genesis 12, 3, the Abrahamic covenant is taught by Isaiah in Isaiah 49, verse 6, when he says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, it's a reference to Israel, and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I'm going to put you in exile, but I'm bringing you back, and I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So he's saying, hey, look, I've got a plan for you. You're going into exile. You're coming back. But all along, I have a thread of redemption through my people. And it's through my people that you're to be a light to the end of the earth. This is what Simeon, 
blessed Jesus at the temple said when he was just a baby. Jesus is a baby, right? And he comes to be blessed at the temple on like day eight. And in Luke chapter two, verse 30 through 32, Simeon says this, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon was excited. He's excited. This is it. This is the Messiah. He's a light for all peoples, for the Gentiles, and to bring glory to your people Israel. If they repent and believe in him, if they don't repent and believe in him, they're still in apostate condition. That's why we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, as I did in the pastoral prayer, but don't think for some second that God's pleased with Israel. He's not. They've rejected the Messiah. And yet we know at one point in time and future yet, they will be redeemed, those who repent and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus preached the gospel to all peoples and even spent time going through the Decapolis, which is 10 Gentile cities around the northern part of Israel. Paul was just following in the footsteps of Jesus by proclaiming the light of salvation to both Jew and Gentile. And this is partly why Paul was arrested. Not only did he preach the resurrection, which they hated, but he preached union between Jew and Gentile, which they hated. And out of their own jealousy, they tried to kill Jesus, and now they're trying to kill Paul because he's preaching the same message. And this brings us to number three, Paul unapologetically pronounced true and rational words. Your next blank says the Gentile perspective was that Paul was crazy. They thought this whole message it's absolutely crazy, like what we talked about in introduction, that he's lost his mind, that he's now had a manic episode. He is certifiably insane. That's what Festus thinks. In fact, Festus can't stand it anymore. Remember, Festus has already tried him. This is just supposed to be before King Agrippa, who was Jewish. But Festus can't hold his tongue anymore. In verse 24, he says, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Again, Festus had been listening with a growing bewilderment as Paul continued to make his defense. Paul was obviously an educated and a brilliant man, so how could he believe what he was saying could actually somehow be true? Did he really think that Jesus of Nazareth, a man who had been crucified under one of Festus's predecessors, namely the governor Pilate, was now alive and had personally spoken to him? And so at this point, Paul's explicit declaration of Christ's resurrection was too much for this Roman's rational sensibilities. Festus could hold it back no longer, so he interrupted Paul's speech and he blurted out in a loud voice, Paul, you're crazy. You're completely out of your mind. Every intelligent, sane Roman citizen knew that dead men don't come back to life and they don't talk to people. And so the only explanation could be that Paul's mental musings must have caused him to lose it. And surely at this point, everyone could see that Paul has completely lost touch with all reality. It is not surprising that Paul was accused of being insane because so was Jesus. 
He was also accused of being crazy and out of his mind. Mark chapter 3, verse 21 says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. People thought Jesus was crazy. His own family did. People think Paul's crazy. And the, the reason for these accusations against both Jesus and now Paul are wrapped up in 1 Corinthians 1.18. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So for those who don't know Christ, particularly a Roman Gentile mindset that doesn't really have an orientation towards God as creator, who will one day redeem his people by sending the Messiah, they just think, you know what, this whole thing is crazy. It's folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so Paul here is calmly and clearly responding to this accusation when he says, again in verse 25, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, still being courteous, but I'm speaking true and rational words. Paul is of sound mind. He's speaking the truth. He's not emotional. He's not rational. Uh, excuse me, he's not irrational. He is rational. He is logical. He is method, me, uh, methodical. He, he's, he's, he's very clear, drawing a line in his argumentation. He's full of scripture. He's soundly anchored in Moses and the prophets. He's accurately representing the facts just as they happen. Paul is simply proclaiming that Jesus really is the Messiah and that Jesus really had been resurrected and that Jesus really does provide salvation for all who repent and believe in the gospel. So while the Gentile perspective, according to Festus, was that he's out of his mind, B says the Jewish perspective was that Paul was just simply wrong. They couldn't say he's crazy because he had too much truth and quoting too many Old Testament prophets. So they just say, they're just going to say, well, we think you're wrong. We disagree, Paul. We think you're wrong, verse 26, for the king knows about these things. So Paul's turning now from Festus and speaking about King Agrippa. For the king knows about these things. To him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And so in these verses, again, Paul is taking advantage in a sense of Festus's interruption to focus on Agrippa. So he speaks first about Agrippa in the third person in verse 26, and then he addresses him directly in verse 27. Paul expresses his confidence that the king knew of the truth of which he had been saying that none of this, and, and, and none of this, this, this testimony about Christ and the resurrection and his death and resurrection at the beginning of the church of Acts 2 at Pentecost, none of this could have fully escaped Agrippa's attention. He was well-schooled in Judaism and well aware of what was happening in Christianity, and this was no secret. Christianity is not a secret society religion. Christianity did not begin as a mystery religion with secret rites and rituals that only the higher-ups knew about. It did not begin like the Mormon religion in Palmyra, New York, where Joseph Smith said that he had received a special revelation from God on golden tablets which were hidden from others. This is, not, this is not what's happening. This is in broad daylight. The manifestation of the Son of God was a public matter. It was never secret, and it was never private. Jesus was killed publicly. Jesus was raised from the dead publicly. 
He did not only appear to the disciples in the upper room, but he appeared to over 500 people at one time. Our faith is not a private matter. It is a public matter. And God has declared for his truth to be made known to the entire world. So Paul is just stating what is true. And so we've seen Paul preach repentance and obedience. We've seen him proclaim the same message as Moses and the prophets. We've seen him pronounce true and rational words. And then last, number four, Paul tried to persuade Agrippa to be a Christian. Your next blank, Paul requests from Agrippa a direct answer. He requests this direct answer. Again, verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? So again, in this moment, Paul remained cool and unruffled by Governor Festus's outburst and refusing to accept the charge against him. He courteously deflects Festus's put down and then he used it to pursue King Agrippa's dark heart with his direct question and the strategy of Paul's direction and his plea to Agrippa is to be noted. He told Festus that he was sure that this king knew and understood a great deal about the story of Christ since none of this had happened in a corner. I mean, it didn't happen in private, didn't happen just with our people only. This is a public thing. And so he knew that Agrippa was aware of this. So he asked him, backing up a little bit, he said, hey, Agrippa, do you, do you believe the prophets? Do you believe what Moses said in Moses uh, in, in uh, Deuteronomy 18:15 about the prophet who would come after me? We're supposed to listen to him. Do you believe what David said in Psalm 22, Psalm 16? Do you believe what Isaiah said in, I, in Isaiah chapter 53? Hey, do you believe, King Agrippa? Do you believe these things are true? I know that you believe. This is a very direct question, and so uh, this was this was a. a opportunity for Agrippa to confess and repent and believe, but. As you know, he didn't. He, he didn't confess. He didn't repent. In fact, he was caught off guard. He may have been somewhat embarrassed. His public image would require him to say that he believed the prophets, for he could not deny the claims of the Old Testament, but he saw where Paul was trying to lead him and did not want to go there. And so he parried Paul's question with a clever counter question. In a short time, will you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa asked. He's basically saying, I've been a Jew my whole life. I was born this way. King Herod the Great, remember him? That's my grandpappy. You know, I've been around a long time in this thing. I ain't about to switch lanes right now. Instead, he's like kind of mocking Paul. Do you think you're going to change me in a short amount of time that you can make me somehow be a Christian? Well, Paul responds to that in verse 29, your next blank. Paul reveals his sincere desire, his sincere desire. Paul said, yeah, whether it's short or long. I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. No matter how long it took, Paul had a sincere, heartfelt desire that all who heard the gospel would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. The setting and the scene again presents a startling contrast. Paul, a lowly prisoner in chains, tells the political and the military leaders and other important figures that he wishes that they could become like him. He's the one in prison. He's the poor guy. And he's like, I wish you guys could be like me. Their, their fading and fleeting treasure was here on earth, but Paul had an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief could come near and no moth could destroy. 
Paul expressed his fervent wish that whether it be for with a little bit of persuasion or with much, that both Agrippa and all the others present might enter into the joys and the blessings of the Christian life. His sincere desire was that they might share all of Paul's privileges and become like him except for these chains. G. Campbell Morgan, well-known pastor and commentator, said here, quote, Paul would die to save Agrippa, but he would not put his chains upon Agrippa. That is Christianity. Magnify it, multiply it, apply it. The sincerity that persecutes is not Christian. The sincerity that dies to deliver but will not impose a chain, that is Christianity. It's a beautiful quote, isn't it? Reminding us that Paul just wants them to be free. Free, free of enslavement to their pride and their lust and to find that joy of knowing Jesus. But we read what happens here at the end, verses 30 through 32, Paul receives a final verdict. He receives a final verdict in verses 30 through 32. We read, then the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those that were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So with Paul's final words, the inquiry ended. Agrippa the king arose along with the governor, that was Festus, along with wicked Bernice. Remember, she's actually together with Agrippa in an incestuous relationship. All their advisors, they removed themselves from the public uh, arena. And after they had drawn aside, they began to discuss Paul's case. And whatever their view was of Paul's sanity, they all agreed that he had done nothing worthy of death, nothing worthy of imprisonment, and yet they lacked the courage to release him. That's why Agrippa summed up their view when he said, this man might have been set free if, they, if he had not appealed to Caesar. And so the question arises as to why Paul could not be released, since both Festus and Agrippa had found him innocent of wrongdoing. And the answer is... They could have. They could have released him. There was nothing binding them to turn him in to, uh, to the emperor. Right? He, remember, Festus still hadn't written anything up yet. They could have easily just said, okay, we're going to let you go, but they didn't want to. And part of it was, no doubt, God's purpose that Paul would go to Rome and be tried before the emperor. Jesus had already prophesied about that, if you remember, that he would testify in Rome But what Agrippa and Festus did not understand was that in a way, Paul had been the judge and they had been prisoners on trial. They were prisoners to, again, their own pride and their own lust and their own power. They had been shown the light and the way to freedom, but they deliberately chose to remain in their chains while Paul was 100% free. Paul was free of sin. He's free of pride. And yet, now this group is the ones that are enslaved by their own pride and their own power. You know, nobody called D.L. Moody crazy when he was energetically selling shoes and making money as a shoe salesman. But when he changed professions and went from being a shoe salesman in Chicago to being a world-renowned evangelist, people then gave him the nickname Crazy Moody. They thought he was crazy. This is not the first time, again, that Paul would be called crazy. He's following in the footsteps of his master. 
And what a wonderful thing it is to have the opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ and to be saved by his atoning sacrifice. What a terrible thing and a waste of an opportunity like this to hear the gospel and yet to keep Paul in imprisonment and to then face a final judgment without Christ. How about you this morning? See, the crazy person isn't the one who sells out for Jesus. The crazy person is the one who rejects Jesus, rejects God's way through the scripture. So as we leave this morning, take home section here says, do you understand the importance of preaching a gospel that's all about grace, but that's also evidenced by deeds in keeping with repentance? I hope that you call people to repent and believe And then you just remind them that true faith walks in obedience to God's word. Number two, do you understand the importance of preaching Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies? It's vitally important that we could root and ground the new covenant in the old covenant instead of just ignore it altogether as if it doesn't have a place in redemptive history. It does. Number three, do you understand the importance of speaking the truth, asking direct questions, and trying to persuade others to become Christians? Here's where most of us lack. We don't have the courage and the guts to look at someone directly and say, hey, do you believe in what the Bible says? You know, typically we share just a little bit. Well, you know, there's the gospel and Jesus died and I hope you'll consider it, you know, and we kind of walk around our way because it gets uncomfortable. You know, I'm not saying you got to close the deal, like, like, you know, some people are like, if you don't have them pray the prayer right down on the spot, then you've lost their souls forever. I don't believe in that either. But I do believe in asking direct questions. Where, what do you believe about the death and resurrection of, the, of Jesus Christ? It's a very bold strategy to help bring center, not only the preaching of the gospel, but this persuasiveness to the argument to call people to repent and believe. That's what we're doing right here this morning. I'm calling you out of darkness into light calling you out of a life of sin into a life of saving grace through the Lord Jesus. And if that's something you want to talk more about after our closing song, we'll have a few people standing right here. We'd love to talk to you about how you could come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Or if you're here and you already know Christ, but you feel like, you know what, God's calling you into the ministry or God's calling you into some new area of obedience and you just want some accountability and some encouragement and prayer, be our delight to provide that for you this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to to be together in your word today and just to hear again over and over and over the the defense of Paul, the courage of Paul. We know it all comes from you, Lord. And we just thank you for the clarity of seeing what we've seen even this morning, that it's a repentance that keeps in step, um, it's it's a faith that keeps in step with repentance and repentance that is demonstrated by fruits, that we'll know them by their fruits, as the Lord Jesus said. Help us to examine our own hearts and lives in light of that truth and in others as well, that we'd be willing to challenge and encourage and point people to the saving uh, testimony of the resurrection and how that testimony uh, ought to radically transform our lives to walk in obedience to you for the rest of our days. God, help us this morning to walk by faith, not by sight, and to live for you with all that we are. And that would transform us in how we live this week. We pray in Jesus' name.